Welcome to the Fastest 5 Minutes presented by Kroll & Mooring. We are your co-hosts, Peter Ayer and David Robbins, bringing you a bi-weekly summary of significant government contracts, legal and regulatory developments that no government contracts lawyer or executive should be without. So we start with Supreme Court news. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court released an important decision that relates to Exemption B-4 under the Freedom of Information Act. B-4 is the exemption that allows the government to withhold contractors' proprietary and confidential information. Really, for about 50 years, following a 1974 decision by the D.C. Circuit in National Parks v. Morton, courts held that information is confidential for purposes of B-4 only where disclosure would result in substantial competitive harm. That's been the test. Yesterday's decision really changed that. It rejected the so-called National Parks test, noting that the plain language of FOIA makes no mention of substantial competitive harm. Instead, the court held that information is confidential for purposes of FOIA so long as it is customarily and actually treated as confidential and the government provides some assurances that it will remain secret. That definition is broader and we think easier to meet than the prior one. So there's a lot here, a lot to watch for, and a lot to understand in terms of how the government's going to think through what is meant by those assurances, but certainly a very important decision for contractors. David, over to you. Thanks, Peter. We're moving to a very different area of the world, and this is to the continued march of cybersecurity and information protection guidance. The National Institute of Standards and Technology released a draft of its standard publication 800-171-B, as in boy, designed to protect controlled unclassified information, or CUI, from advanced persistent threats, and a draft of companion NIST SP 800-171, revision 2. It details 33 enhanced controls reflecting core principles of penetration resistance, damage limiting operations, and resiliency. Specific controls include those related to segregation, hunt teams, AI-enabled tools, IoT, security, and supply chain, some of which arguably don't have firm industry definitions yet. And this is something we're going to be watching going forward. And unlike the non-substantive updates to Revision 2, 800-171B applies only to contractors handling CUI that the government determines as part of a critical program or is a high-value asset. Just focuses even more on the risk-based approach we're seeing emerge in these draft regulations. Peter, back to you. So we turn to a decision in a case called PROTEC. It's an Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals decision from June 3rd. And it's a very interesting and important decision because it's a case that's first of its kind, and it relates to challenges to past performance assessments. Up until now, the decisions have really focused on jurisdiction, where you can bring complaints about the government's past performance reviews. This is the first case that focuses on the merits of a CPAR evaluation. And on June 3rd, ASBCA published that decision addressing the merits of a CPAR evaluation. In other words, whether the CPAR ratings were fair and accurate under FAR 42.15. And in that PROTECH case, the board analyzed the factual assertions, compared them to the party's evidence, and ultimately held that the CPAR was indeed fair and accurate due to contractors' noncompliance and poor performance. The board also considered the contractor's alleged procedural violation 
that the government failed to perform that CPAR review at a level above the CO, as required by the FAR, but the board held that the contractor lacked standing to challenge that violation because it couldn't show prejudice. This is an important decision for those who are thinking about challenging CPAR's ratings. There's some important procedural pieces, but also because it is the case that is first of its kind in addressing the merits, it's certainly worth a good read. David, back to you. Thank you, Peter. I guess back to the cybersecurity side of the house for just a quick moment. We're following news reports that uh, reported that Kate Arrington, special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition for Cyber in the Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment's office, and she told a room full of vendors that the government, in some cases, will pay for cybersecurity, that in some cases it will be indeed an allowable cost. And she and OSD, I guess informally at this point, are continuing to expand upon that, how that will happen, what minimum standards might look like. It's still nascent. It's still early. But this is something we are following in that when it firms up into more concrete policy and regulation, we'll bring it forward. But for those interested, this is worth tracking as well for you. Now let's skip over to False Claims Act news. And in a recent press release, IBM agreed to pay $14.8 million to settle False Claims Act allegations related to the Maryland Health Benefits Exchange. And what's interesting about this is not because it was a health benefits exchange, but because, at least as we understand it from the press release and the pleadings, IBM apparently bought a problem. They acquired an entity that had problems, and now IBM, as the acquiring parent, has to pay $14.8 million to settle the False Claims Act. And look, we don't get into the merits of this. We don't know enough about it. We can follow it like everybody else. But what's really interesting to me, and Peter, I'd appreciate your take on it too, is that this comes shortly after DOJ Criminal issued its guidance on assessment of effective ethics and compliance programs. And a key and fairly new, from my perspective, element is what happens in transactions diligence, pre-close and post-close and, and integration process. And maybe, just maybe, this is a first example of that in practice. Any thoughts from your end? I think that's exactly right. It's an interesting observation. The timing is interesting. But it is clear that DOJ expects acquiring entities to conduct sufficient diligence to really understand what problems may exist and to have an approach and a plan to address them as quickly as possible. And it's clear in black and white in the guidance that is a DOJ expectation for what an effective compliance program looks like. Yeah, I, I will probably change some of the diligence efforts and certainly what happens before close and what the post-merger, post-acquisition integration checklist and frankly deadlines yes. looks like going forward. So it's something to watch, that's for sure. Good. Well, lots of news, and we'll keep on watching. That's it for this edition, and we'll see you again in two weeks. In the meantime, if you need anything, David can be reached at 202-624-2627, and Peter can be reached at 202-624-2807. Thanks for listening. The Fastest 5 Minutes podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mori LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash govconpodcast.